You are listening to the Hope Fellowship Church Podcast. To find more information about our church and ministries, check out our website at hopeandanderson.com. Now, this week's teaching. Good morning. My name is Isaac Beckner. I've been coming to Hope here for about four years, and uh, yeah, it's been fun. Uh, Please stand for today's reading. Our passage today is Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaish. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Uh, it's great to see you today. Grab your Bibles and your devices. Today we will complete Judges chapter 2 together as we talk about this thought, uh, what does a real crisis look like? What does a real crisis look like? And so this week I received a text from Verizon. I don't know if you ever received those texts and said, we have a deal for you, right? And uh, the deal was that we wanted to offer you a new iPhone 15 Pro Max. Well, I got excited, right? They're going to offer me this thing. Well, you know you have to pay for it, right? And uh, it only costs about $10,000. But yet, uh, so I got excited because I began to think, you know, that um, I'm kind of in like a cell phone crisis right now is what I am because I have have an iPhone 12 mini and um, I only have two lens on it and the iPhone 15 has three. So I told the Lord, you know, said, you know, if you provide this for me that I could uh, take greater photographs of your amazing creation. I can enjoy that greater, right? So yes, and, and, but, you know, and I don't have the most updated version of that as well, of, of an iPhone. So anybody here have an iPhone older than a 12? Anybody? Anybody? Uh, I know the Android people are getting mad right now. Okay, some of you do, right? Anybody have an iPhone, like, anybody have a 7? Anybody in the room have a 7? No, no 7s? Oh, no, we do. Oh, you're hesitant. You're ashamed, aren't you? Yes, that's okay. That's all right. We'll be taking up an offering for you later. So we actually have a free iPhone 15 Pro Max for you today. Isn't that great? No, I'm just kidding. I wish we did. Right. Yeah. And and so, you know, I thought about the word crisis, right? Because uh, maybe you've been uh, praying for God to provide for you something to replace your iPhone 7. And you've been praying and asking God to do that. And so far, God's not come through with that, right? And who wouldn't want an iPhone Pro Max, a professional maximum? I mean, that's great. The only best thing would be the 16 Pro Maximum Ultra, right? Which I don't know that exists. Not yet, anyway, but I'm sure it will at some point. So we take this word crisis, and I think, and we put a lot of stuff in it. We do. We kind of bunch a lot of stuff in there about our spiritual life as well. So today, can I show you from the book of Judges, chapter 2, a real spiritual crisis? And I think it helps us to wrap our mind around what that looks like for us, what that looked like for Israel as well, maybe even what that looks like for us as a nation that we live in. So let me start by reading, starting at verse 7 for a moment. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. 
who had seen all the great works of the Lord he had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, I stopped there for a moment. If you grew up in church, which I did, a good Sunday school joke here for you. You know, the old question was always, other than Adam and Eve, who's the other person that lived that never had a physical mom or dad? And we always said that was Joshua. Why? Because he is the son of Nun. I know, it's not funny, is it? Yeah, but I, I just thought I would throw it out there. First service, I even got less of a reaction. So I love you guys, I really do. I love you more than the first group. So here it is. And Joshua, the one without a mom or dad, the son of Nun, the, <clears throat> the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. You know, when we read these verses together, it seems like that we always start out with this glimmer of hope for Israel. And man, they are headed in the right direction. Things are going really well, you know, and things are just super positive for them. And then Joshua dies and everything kind of goes south for Israel at that point. It's sort of the, the plight of humanity as I think that we see throughout scripture. Then in verse 10, it says, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, meaning those that knew Joshua, the generation that followed the Lord, they are all dead is what he's simply saying. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, that's a spiritual crisis, is what that is. And when you look at that and you look at the things that we have lumped into this category of crisis in our life, man, that's a biggie right there. That really is. That's a big crisis that you have this generation who follows all of those that followed Joshua and followed him in faith and you find that they don't know the Lord. It's an amazing thing. So I have a couple of crises to talk to you about that we find through this chapter. We'll finish up chapter two together. Next week, chapter three, we start our first judge together as well. And so it's going to be a lot of fun. So the first is this, the crisis of not knowing the Lord. How does this happen? This is a nation that follows God under the leadership of Joshua. And now since Joshua is gone, well, wow, they're no longer following God. So how does this come about? And all of a sudden we say, well, it has to be that they no longer have the influence of this great leader, Joshua. And so that this is why they're falling away from God. Well, let me tell you something. First of all, is this that as we started two weeks ago, Judges starts out with the death of Joshua. Judges is a just a, a compilation. It is. It is 340 years of Israel's history. But here's the kicker. During this 340 years of Israel's history, there's no national leader. They have no king. They have no president. They have no prime minister. So there is no national leader for 340 years in the, in the life of, of Israel. So we kind of look at this and think, well, the reason that they are doing this and the reason they're acting the way they're doing is because of this leadership vacuum that Joshua was gone. But I begin to read and I went to verse 23, it says, so the Lord left those nations, talking about the Canaanites that are still in the land of promise where they're living. The Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So what this says to me is this, that this is an issue that has been taking place in the life of Israel through that of the leadership of Moses and then Joshua as well. And so I wrote in my journal this week that our faith must be personal in a lot of ways, right? That we can blame, <clears throat> excuse me, we can blame spiritual crisis in our life on people or circumstances or situations. We can, or we can be riding on someone's faith. 
We can be riding on the faith of our grandparents or our parents or, or someone that we know or a, a religious figure in our, <clears throat> our life that we hold dearly. And so we can do that. But at some point in your life, in my life, our faith must become personal. And I went through that whole journey as well uh, for years in, in that of discovering a personal faith with Christ and not that of a faith of my grandparents who were amazing spiritual giants within my life as well. So our faith must become personal. But what I realized in seeing that even Israel struggled with this whole thing of idols and having other gods in their life, even through the leadership of Moses and through that of Joshua. And it's the tension of allegiance that we manage daily within our life, whether you have a Joshua or whether you don't. There's always something that's vying for your your worship in this world, for the lordship of your life. There's always something vying for that of who you're going to trust in in this world. And so what I realize, it's a tension that we must be aware of because it's a tension that you and I must manage. It doesn't go away until that of the return of Christ or until that of you are glorified in a new body. They will always deal with that in a broken world. Something will always want our worship and something will always want to be Lord of our life other than God. It's the world in which we live. And so the moment the enemy, the moment the devil lulls us into a state of spiritual amnesia, we find our worship redirected to other things. And when you read this verse, what I realize is that when they forgot the Lord is really what it's saying. When they forgot the powerful and amazing things that God had done for them, when they forgot how he rescued them out of Egypt, when Israel moved away from those things, that what it did It just didn't have like, well, you know, it really is no big deal. No, it was a big deal because what happens in their life is it begins to redirect their worship is what it does. And we're going to talk about for a few minutes. How does a nation that has served the Lord all the days of Joshua, 110 years that they've been walking with God, how do they digress to a nation that does what's evil in the sight of God? How does that happen? And what I realize is there's this direct correlation here between not knowing the Lord and intentionally forgetting what he has done. So I thought, well, is it possible for you and I to intentionally forget something? So I thought, well, I don't know if that's real or not, right? So I begin to search it. How do you search that? You Google it, correct? Yes. I Googled it on my iPhone 12 is what I did, right? And so I Googled it. And the reality is, yes, you can do that. But it's not by distancing yourself from that event or that moment. It's how you place an importance on that thing in your life or an irrelevance or a priority. And at some point, it loses its influence over you. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. They forgot the ways of the Lord. They forgot the amazing things that God had done for them, specifically that of the exodus out of Egypt. They forgot how that God overcame their captors, that God rescued them and marched them out of Egypt with Moses leading them and and treasures with them to boot as well. They forgot all of the amazing things that God did for them throughout the 40 years in the wilderness. Because what I realize is this, if we're not rehearsing the mercies of God in our life, if we're not thinking about the redemptive work of God within our lives today, then at some point, it will redirect our worship and our lives and the lordship of our life. And we will find that there will be other things in our life that we're going to trust in more than we're going to trust in God. That's the point. 
if you wondered how you got to where you are today in your spiritual walk, and maybe you can say, yes, I, I, I have this other thing in my life. I'm trusting in this relationship. I'm trusting in that, that if you find yourself there today, then perhaps how you got there is that you stopped recounting and rehearsing that of the mercies of God in your life daily. So tomorrow is Yom Kippur. In Judaism, it is a day set aside where they recount what they read in the book of Torah from that of Leviticus 23, and then they recount the words of Moses that's recorded in that of the book of Exodus chapter 34. And they, what they do is they recount the mercy and the greatness and the love of God for the nation of Israel. And in Judaism on Yom Kippur also, what it means that your sins are forgiven, but not just forgiven, but what they celebrate is the fact that it's after they've never sinned before. It's what we call justification as well. And so they commemorate those things because it centers them back on God is what it does. And I would encourage you today that if you've lost your sinner with God, if you've lost God being the, the total uh, just king of your life today, if you become out of sinner with God then I would tell you, how do you do that? How do you get God back in the center of your life? You begin to recount the things that God has done. You begin to recount the amazing redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. You see, what's amazing about what Israel was called to do and then what they do in Yom Kippur is they go back and they recount Exodus. Well, the amazing thing is for you and I that the exit out of Egypt is just a powerful picture of the redemptive work of God. That God comes and he leads those that are captive out who are undeserving, undeserving of that of liberty in their life. Just as he did you and I in our life when we were captive to sin. And he brings us into the promised land and he brings you and I into that of life with Christ. But when you forget that, there is a big cost to forgetting the things that God has done for you in your life. And that is that it recenters your worship and recenters the lordship of your life onto something else. And that is the problem that Israel has because they fail to recount the mercies of God and they forgot the things that God has done for them. Can I tell you what? The mercies of God fuels everything that you do. Let me read from Romans chapter one and verse one for you for a moment. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What Paul says to you and I is this. All the things I'm about to say to you are simply brought about in your life by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holding acceptable to God by the mercies of God which is your spiritual worship by the mercies of God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How? By the mercies of God, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God by the mercies of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, all by the mercies of God. Wow. And when we fail to remember those things, when we fail to recount those things, when we fail to talk about them and teach them and model them, then our faith becomes childless and barren and we have a generation that follows us in our faith that doesn't know the Lord. So part of the Torah and given to that in the Pentateuch, those first books of the Bible is the Shema. 
It's the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Listen to these words, powerful, because they're written to Egypt, to, to Israel, but they're written to you and I. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. You shall, they shall be frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. It's, it's this powerful statement of faith of Israel that we find in the Old Testament for you and I as well. And what I realize is this, not only not recounting the mercies of God and thinking of them daily and talking about them when we sit around in our homes and when we go our way, not, not only is there a powerful effect on us when we neglect those things, but unto the generations that follow us as well, that they don't know the Lord. So it's a powerful thought as we start our teaching this morning about that. Verse 11 says this. And the people of the Lord, or the people of Israel, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served Baals. So this is the crisis of of plurality in our life. The crisis of plurality within our life this morning. When you look at it, he doesn't use the singular uh, word for Baal. He uses the the plural form of that, Baals, because it's, I think that what we do sometimes, when we talk about idols to Christians, you know, and you say, Mark, this is church, right? And, and so there, there are no idolaters here this morning, right? There's no idol worshipers here. Well, just hang on for a second, okay? Love me through this for a moment, right? Because I want to talk to you about that. Because Judges is for us right now and for us as a group and a faith family. Because I think what we do is we frame this thing of that of having false gods in our lives, our idols in our life, and that of it looking like a graven image. And, and I, I would assume to say that many of you, most of you, probably do not have a graven image in your home right now. Maybe some of you do. That's something we need to talk about at some point. Absolutely. But I would say most of you don't. So Mark, what are you talking about? And why are you talking about the plurality of worship with us today? Because the word Baal in the Canaanite language means Lord. Is what it means. It means the things in your life that you trust in above God. It's the things in life that you desire above God within your life is what he's talking about. And so the generation after Joshua, they forgot about the Lord and they served many gods is what they did. So the worship life of Israel is very complex. It's not just simple that they stopped serving the Lord of Israel and started serving another God. It's not that at all. What they did is they still acknowledged the Lord of Israel, but they mixed in other gods with their worship as well. So that they had this thought that they weren't going to deny the God of Israel, the true God, Jehovah God. They weren't going to deny him, but yet they were going to bring in other gods into their worship. So it makes their worship life very complex. And so they they combine the worship of the Lord with idols. Because in the culture of the Canaanites, there was gods for everything. So you had a God for your job. You had a God for your money. 
You had a God for sex. You had God for your relationships. You had God for other things in life. There was a God for everything. All the crops that you would plant. There are gods for your livestock. There are gods for everything. So what it made possible for the Israelites to do is to just choose a God that would apply to one moment in their life or one place in their life. But here's the overwhelming commonality of all of the gods of the Canaanites. None of them required total lordship over your entire life. That's something to think about, isn't it? It's the reason we talk about this. Yeah. Because we're not, you know, the, the danger, I think, of us coming in here every Sunday morning is that we don't feel like, you know, we don't feel like we're wrong because we're not atheists, right? We're not denying God. But yet what we do when we come into this place is that we are mixing other gods, other idols in our life with that of the one true God. And I think that's, that's what makes this so dangerous for you and I. It is, is that we try to do that and we say, okay, God, here's the thing. I want to acknowledge you, but to allow you to be Lord over this area of my life, I can't do that. Because that would mean that I would have to have major change in this area of my life. So, Lord, I'm going to let you be God over all these other things. But I'm going to keep this for myself because that is my idol. Do you see that? That's my idol. You see how Judges, or the book Judges, it speaks to you and I so powerfully in these moments of our lives because we live in a day, in a moment where we, where we have this Canaanite culture. That I want to I say godly things, man. And, and I want to acknowledge God. I'm, I'm not brave enough, you know, because I'm afraid of lightning, right? So I'm not brave enough to say that, that there is no God. But I'm going to acknowledge him. But yet I'm going to have these other areas of my life that I'm not going to surrender to him. So what do I do about this? Three things. I want to give you something practical in a moment. So here's the three things that we do about this. First, we got to acknowledge or identify the idols of my life. I have to, and and I will just give you this up front. It's not a statue for most of you. It's not a statue at all. No. For some of you, it's a person. For some of you, it's your job. For for some of you, it's it's even your education. For for some of you in this room, it's a relationship that you're in that you know that is absolutely toxic for you. And yet, you know, you still tell God, God, man, I don't want to be lonely. So I know you understand. So here here I am. And and like I told you last week, like that's not that's not just an out for you to ditch your spouse. Okay, understand that, right? That's not what we're saying. But you know where I am. So I have to identify that in my life. I think the second thing is this, that am I willing to do whatever God says about this area? Boy, that's huge, isn't it? Because God, what if God says to you, no? God says, no, that's, that's done in your life. You have to put that to the side. This is over for you. Then are you willing to do whatever God says in that area of your life? Man, that's surrender, right? Have you ever wondered why? Man, I could get so sidetracked here and we would never finish. You guys would be here like three o'clock in the afternoon. I hope you guys packed a lunch, right? But uh, I, have you ever wondered why you struggle with obedience to God? Can I tell you what always comes before obedience? Surrender. Do you know that? Surrender does. And that's what it's saying. Am I willing to do whatever God says 
about this area of my life? And the third thing is, am I willing to accept whatever God sends in this area? What, is, what does that mean, Mark? That means that when you take an idol out of your life, then it leaves a void within inside of you. I mean, think about it. It does. Then what does God send in that area? What is he sending in that area for you that, that is going to fill that area of your life? And are you willing to accept that from God? Knowing that he's the father who desires the very best for your life. Wow. That's huge. Say, Mark, these are rough. This is, you know, judges is tough. Are, are we going to be like in this for months together? And, you know, I need to bring band-aids with me to church or something. I don't know, right? And, and you, you're wondering, no. Can I tell you, in the middle of a chapter, am I a God? God really says some rough things to us through, through his servants in here, right? Boy, he does. He, and, and we'll get into some of those in just a moment. But he does, and it makes you wonder, boy, does, you know, is God punitive? Is, is God just angry all the time? And, and, and I want to tell you that actually chapter 2 is an amazing chapter in the book of Judges on how much God loves you. Can I tell you how much he loves you in a moment? Let me show you. It's verse 3. I go back to where we were last week. I just want to show you this for a moment. So now I say, I will not drive out I will not drive them out before you. I'm not going to run out all the Canaanites that are around you in the, in the promised land. I'm not going to do that because I told you to do it and you didn't do it. So I'm going to leave them there, he said. But they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. Have you ever wondered how God loves you by allowing there to be a thorn in your side? Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So, I brought a thorn for you, right? I don't know if you can see that or not. It's one thing to step on that, correct? It's another thing to have that stuck into your side. Well, there's some biblical analogy to that of side, and it it becomes something that's evident to you daily, that that you are aware of that thing that's in your life. And what this text is saying to me and to you is this. That God loves me enough to not allow me to become comfortable in serving other gods. God loves me enough that he's not going to allow me to find any fulfillment in having a relationship with some other God other than him. And he loves me enough to leave a thorn stuck in my side so that it will always bring me back to him. Wow. So now some of you are getting in a mental picture who that thorn in your side is, aren't you? Yeah. If they're the person next to you, don't look at them right now. Look at me, okay? Because they'll know what you're thinking. Right? But you know. You see, God is willing by his love to challenge you in those areas of your life today, not leaving those things unchallenged. Understand that that's how much he loves you. Because I wrote this in my journal this week, that it hurts God to see his children in pain, but it hurts him more to have them distant from him. Understand that. It hurts God when we are in pain with a thorn in our side, but it's more painful to God to know that you are distant from him. That's how much he loves you. Realize that. He's willing to go to these links to have a relationship with you. 
And he did that with the life of Israel in the book of Judges. For 340 years, he repeats this. And every time he sends a judge, he sends this heroic figure into their life in order to get them out of a pinch in life. Then it says that after the judge goes away, which says what they do, then Israel doesn't just go back to being evil like they were before. They go back to even being more evil. And what does God do? God continually loves them. He continually loves them. What a powerful picture of the love of God right in Judges chapter 2, which seems to be that chapter where God really gets angry. Well, God does. Let me show you. It's verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So I stopped there. I want to say this. This is the, this is the third crisis, a crisis of unrealized jealous anger. And we get nervous when we talk about God and anger. Well, I'm going to talk about God and jealousy for a moment. I want you to hear this because I think this is important. We struggle with this side of God. God becomes righteously angry at our sin. He does. We need to, we need to grasp that today, that God is righteously angry over our sin. Hmm. So you've greeted everybody and you know each other really well right now. You knew this was coming, right? If you've been to Hope, you know this is going to happen. I know, right? I'm predictable. Could you turn to the person next to you and say, God is righteously angry over your sin. Could you say that to him for a moment? Don't just say it. Come on, it's okay. Now ask them, what sin is God angry over? No, don't ask them that, right? Little too uncomfortable in the room. Little too much. See, I think we have to, it's, it's easy to grasp all these characteristics of God in the nature of God, that God is loving and God is kind and God is faithful. Yes, and all of those kinds of things, equally across the board of all of those kinds of things. But I also think we have to realize that, that God is righteously, jealously anger, angry about our sin. But here's the thought. Do we understand the difference between righteous jealousy and sinful jealousy? Because the reality of loving someone is that you can't love anyone outside of jealousy. Now, this is a great time to just pray and send you home and just let you marinate in that, right? Yeah, because she's going to draw all kinds of wrong conclusions about what I just said, that you cannot love apart from jealousy. Mark, have you lost your mind? No, no, no. Give me a moment to explain. Let me, let me say it to you like this. I am jealous for the affection of Reba. I am. Yeah. Now, for those of you, it's your first time coming today and you've never been here before. Uh, Reba is my wife. Let's clarify that, okay? You just got to throw that out there, you know? I just want to just leave it hanging. But, but it is, I am jealous for the affection of Reba. I am. What do you mean, Mark? I want her affection to be centered upon me and not another man. Oh, boy, that's right. That's for sure, right? Yes, so is there anything wrong with that? Let me think about it. Is there anything wrong? No, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm jealous for my family, that I want my, my three sons and my two amazing daughter-in-loves and, and my four 
wonderful grandchildren. I want them to, to grow in the love of God and for my grandchildren to grow up to love God like with their, all their heart and all their mind and all their soul. I want them to do that, but I'm jealous for that for them. Is there anything wrong with me being jealous, wanting that for their life? No, there's not. And you see, that is the way God is jealous for us. Understand that. And I think that helps us to grasp that and put some definition to it this morning as well. That he's jealous to be our only God and the only, only point of object of worship for our lives. And that is absolutely good for us. Realize that because the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is apathy. And God will never stand back. And be apathetic toward your spiritual life. He will never stand back, as I say to you so many times, with his hands in his robe and just watch you self-destruct. God is not going to do that. God will always step into your life. He'll always intervene in your life in some way. Understand that. That is just the way God is. That's how much he loves you. Realize that he's never apathetic about his relationship with you and never will be. Never. In fact... If we read verse 18, it says, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. God says he's moved to pity by their groaning, not their repentance, but groaning. It's different, right? Yes, it's their suffering. It's things that they bring on themselves because of their bad decisions as a nation. And they're not even remorseful for that. It is this powerful thought about how much God loves you and I. That even in those moments when we are suffering because of something that we have brought upon ourselves. And we're not remorseful for what has happened or what we've done in our life. God still loves us. God is still moved emotionally in his own heart by all of those things. That is a powerful picture of the way that God loves you and I this morning. Verse 16. We're working our way through the end. Say, Mark, you just did 18. Now you're going back to 16. I know I can't miss that. I want to show you this. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the land of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges for they whored after other gods some of you have been waiting for me to read that, haven't you? Yeah, you've just been like, oh, I knew that was there because I read beforehand. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commands of the Lord. And they did not do so. So here's, here's the beauty of this and what God does in these moments. He raises up saviors throughout the book of Judges who need a savior themselves. He does. He raises up guys like Gideon or Samson or others who are in need of a savior themselves. People that are inconsistent and sometimes immoral in their life and sometimes out of control, but God uses them. So what's God's ultimate plan? God sends a judge who is not recorded in the book of Judges. God sends a judge who is perfect in all of his ways. God sends a judge that not only delivers us from our enemies, but he pays for the price of our disobedience. You see how much God loves you and I today that he sends Christ. He sends his son being the ultimate and final judge for the world. For us. 
But I have to go back to this statement as I kind of wind this all together for us today. For they hoard after other gods. The staff asked me today, how many times was I going to say that word during this sermon? You know, they were going to kind of take bets to count it. Somebody asked me between services where I was going to try to beat my record and say it more this service. No, I'm not saying it for shock factor. This is what it says. Why does God use the terminology there? It's not that Israel just prostituted themselves to other gods. And we, the definition of that of prostituting would be that you would be giving yourself or selling yourself to something that gives you no fulfillment or gives you no love in return. And thus is the life of a prostitute, right? And so that is exactly what they did. They gave themselves to gods who, who really couldn't do anything back for them and could not love them and could never fulfill them in any way. It wouldn't happen. But God goes a second step in these words. Because the word that he used there for prostitute or whore means, hang on to this, married prostitute. I thought that was interesting. Not just a prostitute, but a married prostitute. Why does he use that term there? Because it reflects the kind of relationship that God would have with you and I. That he doesn't want you and I to just be subjects in his kingdom and him be the king. That's not the kind of relationship ultimately that God wants with us. It's not that God wants you and I to just be shepherds or sheep who blindly follow him as the shepherd. God wants a a greater different kind of relationship with you and I than that. What does he want? He wants a relationship that finds itself at a greater intensity and a greater level. And even that of a husband that he has with his wife or a wife that has with his husband. That's what God wants with you and I. He doesn't want blindly leading us blindly following him as he leads. That's not it at all. He wants a relationship like a spouse would have with the other spouse. That's why when we allow other gods into our lives and we want to share those spaces with God, the lordship of our life, that not only are we prostituting ourselves out, but we're also committing spiritual adultery is what he says. Whew. You didn't come here planned for that, did you? Huh? Right? I don't know if you wrote that in your journal before you came here, but that's, that's what he's saying to you and I. He's speaking to where we live. This afternoon when you go home, grab your Bible and read the book of Hosea, chapters one through three, and you'll understand this in a much greater way. So here's where we end, verse 19. He says, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And if I were God, I would fry them, right? No, this not, that's not in there, but that's true, right? Verse 20, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people has, have transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice. The crisis of covenant. Throughout the first two chapters, we find that God mentions the word covenant often. 
And so what God is talking about, he's talking about this covenant that is made with Israel back in Genesis chapter 15. So after you read Hosea this afternoon, read Genesis 15. And in Genesis chapter 15, that God meets with Abraham and God tells Abraham how his family is going to look. So many of them, Abraham, you can't even count. And Abraham, being the practical dude that he is, says, but God, I don't even have a son. And God says, hang on. If I can make you have that many kids, you can have a son. God also says to Abraham that I'm going to give you a land, Canaan. It's where we find them in the book of Judges. God also points out that you're going to have enemies in Canaan in Genesis that you're going to have to run out. The Canaanites, the Jebusites, so on and so forth. The whole Ike family, right? All of them. And so we read that part about the covenant, the promise of God. And and we, well, we center ourselves on that. But if you read through Genesis 15, there's something that we don't talk about a lot. Because when God makes the promise, when he's finished with that, he tells Abraham to go do something. And he says, Abraham, go get some animals, bring them over here. And I want you to cut these animals in half. Now, for some of us, I know, and for the animal lovers in the room, you just broke out in a cold sweat. But hang on for a moment, okay? So God says to cut them in half and divide the halves. This is the ceremony of the covenant. And so the blood from the animals spill on the ground. And God shows up that moment in a burning pot and like a flaming torch. And the ceremony that is that God and Abraham walks through the blood between the animals and they seal the covenant. God seals it with blood. Abraham seals it for humanity with blood. And the covenant is done. So the animals are cut. The time has come for the ceremony. And I'm paraphrasing right now, but you can read it later yourself. And at the moment that it's time for God and Abraham to walk between the animals in the blood, God causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. A sleep that would symbolize the darkness of sin in our life. And so what does God do in the moment that they're both supposed to walk through the animals? God walks through it himself alone. Do you know why? Because he knows us. He knows that no matter how well our intentions are, how much we promise him, how how just, you know, we want to do this, that we are broken, flawed, and sinful. And so what God does He seals both sides of the covenant himself. You know what that means? That means your salvation has always been wholly God's, completely God's. It is is absolutely on his faithfulness and not on yours. Understand that today. 
always been his. It's like going to sign a contract for something and one party signs their place on the contract and sometime during their signing, you fall dead asleep and the other person signs their name in your place as well. You see, that's what God did for you. Because he knows us. He knows that we are prone to trusting in other things outside of him. Yet he still seals the covenant of promise for you and I in light of knowing those things about us. God is saying, let me love you so I pay the price for your disobedience. That's what he's saying. I pursue you when you have no desire to pursue me. I sustain you by my grace when you are faithless. So this morning, why would you trust God with your salvation, your eternity, and not trust him with your day-to-day life? Think about it. That was Israel. God, we trust you to be the God of the covenant, but we're not going to trust you with all these other areas of our lives, so we got to bring in these other gods. He sealed the covenant himself because he knew that you and I would fail. That's his love for us. So I have a question or a a blank for you to fill in today to kind of help you through this. A God that you can trust with your eternity is a God that you can trust with your what? What is that for you? Is it a relationship? Is it a job? Is it your academics? Is it Your money, what is it for you today? Your future? A God that you can trust with your eternity is a God that you can trust with your blank. Because that's where we are. And the beautiful thing about this is God knew that we would be here today. So fill in the blank. What is it for you? What is it for you today? Trusting in that area. So let's pray together for a moment. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, that you know us down to the minute detail of our lives and the way we think. God, you knew us in the book of Genesis. God, you knew that if we walked through the blood, that we would have all the intentions in the world of keeping that side of the covenant, but it is impossible for us to do that. So God, you sealed both sides yourself because you love us so greatly. So Lord, as we open our hearts and our minds to you today and we we 
contemplate this question, God. If we trust you for our eternity, eternity, then God, shouldn't we trust you for blank? Shouldn't we trust you for this in our life? And God, during this prayer time with you, during this moment of reflection, God, that we fill in that blank and we truly trust you with that thing in our life today. Thank you, Father. Father, forgive us for the moments that we have been trusted in other things in our life other than you, ultimately. So, Father, let this be a day when we say, God, I've trusted you in my eternity. God, now I'm going to trust you with this area of my life. Father, thank you for working in our hearts today. Thank you for challenging us from your word. And God, we give you thanks. In your name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's teaching. We hope you have a great week.